0: Hallelujah! Christ is risen! Christ is risen But if Christ is risen, where is he? You ever wonder that? It says after Jesus is risen, he goes and he talks to the disciples. And, and then for 40 days, Jesus hangs out here on earth in a physical body that's recognizable to his disciples who knew him. A body that eats with them, that can touch them, that can breathe on them, that can cook them breakfast. And then after 40 days, Jesus ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And in preparation for that day of ascension, Jesus says what we hear in John 17, which is that, He is leaving the world, but his disciples are staying in the world. Which seems like a bad deal for the world, right? To trade out Jesus for his disciples. And perhaps Jesus has some awareness that this might not go perfectly. Because the entirety of John 17, the whole chapter, is a prayer that Jesus has for his disciples. It's a prayer at his Last Supper. It's a prayer when he's about to leave his disciples, and so he's got some big things he needs to pray for them before he goes. And as I listen to his prayer on this day, on this day when we will welcome new members to our congregation, on this day when we will have an annual meeting to set our budget and elect council members and select delegates to our Synod Assembly, I can't help but notice that in Jesus' prayer for his disciples... He prays for none of those things. Jesus doesn't pray for councils. He doesn't pray for synods. He doesn't pray for bishops. He doesn't pray for buildings or budgets. It doesn't seem like he prays for any of the things that we're going to do today or that have become part of the daily life of modern Christianity. And so I find myself asking, what happens? Did Jesus leave and all we got left with was a church? How did we go from a a group of people following a wandering rabbi to members building an institution? And I think the answer to that can be found in the main thing that Jesus asks God for on behalf of His disciples. You see, in this prayer in John 17, the center of Jesus' prayer is to ask God to protect His disciples. But to protect them in an interesting way, because Jesus doesn't ask God to protect them from hardship or persecution or even death. No, Jesus asks God to protect them so that they may be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. Because, you see, Jesus knows that the greatest threat to his disciples is not fighting with non-believers, it's fighting with each other. Today, we finally reach the end of the book of 1 Peter. And, and for six weeks, we've heard Peter encourage churches that are undergoing persecution. And after six weeks of saying to, to keep true to the faith, to rejoice in the suffering that they experience, Peter wraps it up by saying, resist the devil, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters around the world are suffering in the same way. Really, that all our brothers and sisters in faith are suffering in the same way. There must be some enclave of Christians in this world that have founded their own little society where they don't have to suffer persecution at the hands of anyone else. And indeed, there may be such a little enclave, but those people are also suffering in the same way. Why? Because they're suffering at each other's hands. Sin and Satan doesn't just hang out and bother non-believers and work through them. works through us as well. The only church that doesn't have conflict in it is the church that doesn't have people in it. It's just that simple. And so how in the world is Jesus' prayer to come to pass? How is it that we are to be one as Jesus is one with the Father? And I think the answer to that has to be understood in the way Jesus phrases it, right? He doesn't pray that we be one. He prays that we be one as he and the Father are one. And that's an important distinction. It's an important distinction because a key concept in Christianity is that Jesus is God, but that at the same time, Jesus is different from God the Father. Look, I'm not going to make complete sense of the Trinity for you today, okay? But... (laughs) But the point is this, that even though God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one God with one being, they are at the same time three different persons, which means they have three different personalities. They have three different perspectives on the world, on life. And so when Jesus prays to God the Father, Jesus isn't just, isn't just talking to himself, right? Right? This is is a moment we see Jesus praying. It is God talking to God who has a different perspective, who has a different personality, a different way of understanding the world. And because of that, Jesus actually has different preferences from God the Father. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, hey, you know, God, I'd really rather not be crucified. Yeah, yeah. If this cup can pass, that would sure be great. Jesus has that opinion, that preference, because it's going to be him who's nailed to the cross. Yeah. And so we see what it means to be one with each other as Jesus is one with the Father. It means acknowledging that we have differences. It means acknowledging that we are different persons, different people, and that because of that, we will have different opinions. We will have different preferences because we have different perspectives. But at the same time, Jesus is one with the Father. And in his prayer, he lays out three ways that he is one with the Father. The first way is that he says, I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. What if we, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, tried to live our lives in that same way? What if we tried to help each other finish each other's work that God has given us to do? Because maybe some of us, in our differences, feel called to do the work that Jesus did feeding the hungry. And maybe some of us feel called to do the work Jesus did healing the sick. And maybe some of us feel called to do the work that Jesus did, proclaiming God's word. And so we go out as individuals to do this work. And as we feed people, we realize, you know, it's really hard to cook a meal for hundreds of hungry people all by myself. Or maybe when we go to heal the sick, we go, you know what? This person's illness is beyond my expertise. It would be really helpful to have someone with a different set of expertise to heal this person. Or maybe... When we're ready to preach God's Word, we say, you know, it would be really helpful if we had a space in which to preach God's Word, but I'm so focused on preparing the the lesson that I don't have time to make sure the space is ready, and maybe we could form working groups of people to help each other finish each other's work, yeah? And maybe we could come up with a name for those groups. Maybe we could call them teams, or maybe we could call them committees, or, or maybe if we wanted to get fancy and biblical, we could say, well, you know, we're really all on the way of Christ together. And, and there's a Greek word that means on the way together, and it's synod. So maybe we could just call those groups of people synods. The second way Jesus says in this prayer that he is one with the Father, is he says, Every, the word that you have given me, I have given them, and they have received it. And so what if we, as followers of Jesus, tried to live our lives in that same way? What if we tried to live our lives receiving Jesus' word and passing it on down to others? Well, maybe we'd think to ourselves, we want to make sure we get Jesus' word right. Not just the literal word for word what he said, but what it actually means for us. And so maybe we'd choose someone who could focused their time throughout the week on studying what Jesus actually said so that they could pass it on to us and apply it to our lives. And maybe that person who we've chosen to, to spend their week and their time studying Jesus' word and passing it on to us, we could come up with a name for that person. We could call him a teacher. We could call him a preacher even. We might even call them a Pastor. And maybe we think to ourselves, well, how do we know that this pastor got Jesus' word right? Maybe we need someone who's more knowledgeable, more experienced to supervise this pastor. Yeah, just to make sure that they're getting it right. And we could come up a name with this person who supervises a pastor. We could call him a superintendent. We could call him a pastor of pastors. Or, and now I'm just spitballing, we could call him a bishop. Yeah, I don't know. Crazy idea. The third way that Jesus says that he is one with the Father is he says, all mine are yours, and all yours are mine. What if we, as followers of Jesus, tried to live our lives together in that way, sharing what we have with one another? What if we individually took the resources that we had as people and we pooled them all together into a collective fund? To do the common work that we share. And, and we would probably, you know, have differences of opinion and perspectives, right, on how we should spend that money. So maybe every now and then we could get together and have a conversation about how to spend that money. I have a meeting, we could say maybe once a year, we could call it, I don't know, an annual meeting. Yeah? And, and then Having decided at that annual meeting how we spend the things that we share together, how we use our common resources, we'd probably want to make sure that someone actually made sure we used those resources in the way we agreed upon. And so we could probably select some folks to administer those resources, to oversee them, and, and we could come up with a name for that group of people too, right? We could call them a board, we could call them trustees. And I'm just brainstorming here. We could call them a council. I want to be clear. Right? There is nothing mystical about our budget or our building. Our church constitution was not handed down on Mount Sinai. Jesus didn't call us to create councils and committees. Jesus calls us to love God and to love our neighbor. And as he says in this prayer today, he calls us to do his work of revealing God to the world, so that in knowing the true God and in knowing Jesus Christ, every person in this world might have eternal life. But he calls us to do this work as one, just as he is as one with the Father. And as anyone who's been married can tell you, it is hard work being one with another person. It's hard work for two people to be one, right? It it takes constant communication. It takes constant negotiation and compromise and, and setting up structures so you don't have to reinvent the wheel of your relationship every single day. It takes commitment and work. It takes all that to be one with two people. Imagine how much work it takes to be one with 2.6 billion Christians in this world. Jesus, in this prayer, says that he has glorified the Father by finishing the work that God sent him to do. There is one place in John's Gospel where Jesus says, it is finished. And that is when he dies on the cross. You see, Jesus and God, they may have different perspectives. They may have different preferences about how to live out their mission. But at the end of the day, Jesus dies on the cross because he understands that that radical act of self-sacrifice is the only way that he can truly show humanity who God is, how much God loves us, so that we might trust and know God and have eternal life. And it may not be Jesus' favorite way to reveal God's love to this world. But Jesus, despite his different perspective than God the Father, he agrees. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, let your will be done, not mine. He says this because being one doesn't mean always letting the other person have their way. Being one means bringing together our different persons, our different perspectives, our different experiences to our common purpose. Jesus sees the purpose he has from the Father's perspective. And because of that, He is willing to let the purpose they share be bigger than his personal preference. And so he goes to the cross for us. This is what we are called to, siblings in Christ. Our church, our constitution, our council, our building, they were all made by humans. But they can still be sacred. They can be sacred if we use them the way that Christ calls us to use them. They can be sacred if we use them to help each other finish God's work. If we use them to pass down Christ's word. If we use them to share our lives in common. Our committees, our councils, they can be sacred. They could be sacred if they are the places where we put together our different perspectives, where we put aside our personal preference, where we put first the common purpose we have in Christ. The things that we do to administer this church, they can be sacred if we use them as Christ calls them, calls us to use them, being one with each other as God is one with Jesus. Today, we have eight people who are officially joining the church as new members. And I give thanks for that. And I will tell you, I do not believe a single one of these new members is joining the church because they're in love with our institution. Nope. But they're in love with Jesus. And they know that Jesus has called us to be one with each other as he is one with the Father. And so, though they have been a part of this congregation in many ways for months and maybe even years, though they have shared their life with us in Christ, in word, and in service, today they are taking an additional step. And they are committing themselves to be members with us as members of a body. Not all the same, But all with the same purpose, all with the same work, all with the same life. That together we might be the body of Christ. So that when we ask, Where is this risen Jesus? we can say, Well, Jesus is not in this earth in one body, but then we can look around at each other and we can say, Jesus is in this earth through many members who are one body. And so with that one body may we proclaim Alleluia, Christ is risen. risen I invite you to stand as you are able as the risen body of Christ.